The kingdom doesn't seem to us to be growing all that quickly. It doesn't look like it to me. We're mixed in this very murky society. What will the future actually hold for the kingdom of heaven? It will grow exponentially, says Jesus. And at the judgment, it will shine in its purity. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, continuing our message today, The Surprises of Kingdom Growth. And Jonathan, as uh, you pointed out, it does seem as if the kingdom of God is not growing very quickly here. That could give reason for some to be discouraged, but really, because God is who he is, we don't need to be discouraged, do we? No, absolutely not. God is powerfully at work by his word as it is proclaimed throughout the world, and growth will come. It, it may not always be visible. It may not always happen at the same rate. It may be more marked in some places than in others, but God is committed to the growth of his kingdom. And as his word goes out, powerful things are happening around the world. His kingdom is being built. And for those who may be looking at what we see in culture and in society, it's so good for us to stand on that truth. Not necessarily what we see, not necessarily the news headlines that we may read, but to stand on the truth of God's word. Well, that's right. And we need to look at the world, world events, the shaping of our culture, the direction of culture. We, we need to stand back and look at all this from, from the framework that God gives us in his word and recognize that the big picture and the ultimate direction of history is that God's kingdom is advancing. And that's a great cause for comfort and for praise. Well, we're going to look at this from the book of Matthew today. If you can, grab a Bible Join us in Matthew chapter 13 as we continue a message called The Surprises of Kingdom Growth. Here is Jonathan. Now Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, verse 34, and as we saw last time, not everyone understood by no means. In fact, the parables acted as a kind of spiritual filter. Those with spiritual insight could see his meaning, but others might not see it. But now Jesus leaves the crowds and he goes into the house with his disciples, and they want to know about the parable of the weeds. They don't have special insight yet, but they've got ears to hear. They want to know. And presumably the passage of a few moments of time has prepared the way for Jesus to explain it to them and to us. And what we come now to see and understand is centrally this. The kingdom will shine in purity. That's where this thing is going. It's our second lesson. The kingdom will shine in purity. Despite the present messiness of the situation where the people of the kingdom are mixed in with the people of the world who have not accepted the message, who have not turned from sin, despite the fact that the present scene is profoundly mixed, a day is going to come when the kingdom of God will shine in all its purity and radiance. The one who sows the good seed, says Jesus, is the Son of Man. That is Jesus himself, verse 37. He's spreading his word. He is building his kingdom. The field in which all this takes place is the world. This is a picture of the wider world, the whole of society, not narrowly the church or something like that. The good seed that is sown and planted, that represents the sons of the kingdom, the true disciples of Jesus Christ. The weeds, on the other hand, are the sons of the evil one. Those who do not know and do not follow Jesus Christ have not bowed the knee to him. Unsurprisingly, the one who is busy sowing 
the weeds is the devil himself. He's active in this. He's intentional. He's hard at work. The harvest is the end of the age when history reaches its culmination and the Lord judges the world. The reapers represent the angels who will assist him in this ultimate work of executing judgment. And so Jesus summarizes for us what will take place, what all this points to, verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Not long ago we went fruit picking at a local farm. The strawberries and the raspberries were at their best, and we went out into the fields, fruit baskets in hand. We know this farm pretty well. It's a carefully run operation. Their produce is generally good. But when we got out to the strawberry patch, my first impression, the first thing I noticed was this. The field was actually pretty weedy. And among the strawberries were plenty of other plants that clearly didn't belong. The situation, it just felt a little bit messy to me. But the strawberries were doing well. The harvest was actually great. They were delicious. And as I thought about it, I realized the strawberry field is managed in order not to look pretty. That's not the main point. It is managed in order to produce a harvest. That's the aim. And the farmers there, they know what they're doing. Leaving the weeds and allowing the strawberries to grow undisturbed, that's their priority. And from the piles of the delicious strawberries that we carried away, we could see that it was working. Whatever they were doing, it seemed to be the right thing. If you and I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and compelling and life-transforming, if we believe that the kingdom is growing, if we believe that we are indeed on the right side of history, on the winning side, we do at the same time have to grapple with the messiness of what we see before us. It is hardly the case that society is presently being purged of all sin, that the gospel is transforming the institutions of our nation. It feels like it's going in the other direction, and that all opposition to Jesus Christ is sort of melting away before our very eyes. That's not the way that kingdom growth is happening in our world at the present time, is it? No, people are coming to Christ, men and women, boys and girls from every corner of the globe. The church is being built. The kingdom is indeed expanding, but the world is a mixed and a messy place. There's plenty of darkness, evil, sin, rebellion. Jesus Christ is widely reviled. And if the gospel is so compelling, and if the Father is so powerful, and if the kingdom is so glorious. Why is it like this in our experience? Why is it so mixed and messy on the ground here? Why is the great farmer of the world's field allowing the weeds to continue to grow among the good plants? Why do those who reject the Lord seem to live lives untroubled by the fact that they are rejecting their Maker? Why do wicked people flourish and appear to get away with wickedness, enjoying prosperity in some cases, basking in the sunshine of God's own creation, perhaps even seeming to have a better time of life in this world than the children of the kingdom. Why is it like this? Why is this so? 
Does the fact that the wicked flourish alongside the righteous, does the fact of that indicate that God is not actually in control of the situation or the gospel that we believe is not actually true? I think those are real and important questions for us to grapple with. And Jesus says, you need to understand something. You need to understand that the great farmer is allowing things to develop in this way, allowing things to grow in this way, because ultimately it is going to be best for the crop that he does so. See, the farmer knows that early action, swift intervention, it will be damaging for the ultimate crop result for the yields. It is usually thought that the weed pictured here is bearded darnel, a weed that looks a whole lot like wheat in its early stages of growth. It grows alongside the wheat, and the roots of the two plants become quickly intertwined. But make no mistake, it's not wheat. Its seed is actually poisonous to humans. It interferes with the growth of the wheat in the field. To tear out the weed from the field would be to tear up the good plants too. It would do more damage than good. No, the farmer, he knows to wait. Now, as we move on from the image, from the parable to the reality to which it points, we are prompted to ask the question then, why is waiting good? In, in real terms, in spiritual terms, why is waiting good? Why is it better to wait? I mean, why does the Lord just not, you know, why does he not bring the end of the age now? <laughs> sort it all out now. We feel ready. Why is waiting actually better for the crop? Well, Jesus doesn't go into detail on that here. He doesn't develop the line of thought. He just puts it out there. But as we consider this teaching in light of the wider teaching of Scripture, as we look elsewhere in the New Testament, two reasons for waiting, two purposes for the delay become pretty clear for us. One purpose is that people should have time to repent. That's very, very important. This is the point that Peter makes in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, where he says, talking about the delay, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, the Lord could harvest the good crop now, could bring judgment now, could have brought the history of the world to a sudden end centuries ago, millennia ago, but instead he's waited and he's done so in order that we might turn from sin and find forgiveness in his son. He's been patient, and he is being patient. And, and we, we have to stop right there and just say, if you haven't turned from sin, and you have not personally put your trust in Jesus Christ, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Because the Lord is being patient with you. He's giving you a window of opportunity. If you like, he sort of held the bus and the door is open, but we have no guarantee that he will wait even a moment longer. Won't you come in? Won't you come in even today? Won't you turn to him? Won't you see, receive forgiveness through faith in him? But that's one reason for the delay, so that you might have opportunity to repent. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The Surprises of Kingdom Growth. It's part of our series, Living as Kingdom People, as we have been studying Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to get back to this message in just a moment. 
But maybe as you've been listening to Encounter the Truth recently, the Lord has been using that to show you something new about himself. He's been using this to help you grow in your walk with him. We'd be so encouraged to hear about that. And if you have a prayer request, you can pass that along as well. We'd be honored to pray for you. All you have to do to contact us is come to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Click on the contact link. Let us know how God is using Jonathan's teaching in your life. And if you have a prayer request, we'd be happy to pray for you as well. Again, that's EncounterTheTruth.org and click on the contact link. All right, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. Another reason why the Lord seems to delay the judgment, delay the separation of the weeds and the wheat, it is to refine His people. It's to refine us, to make us more like Jesus, to make us better prepared actually for life in the eternal kingdom. To stick with Peter, although we could look elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1 speaks to people who are evidently facing trial and persecution in this sinful and fallen world. And Peter says this to them, 1 Peter 1 and verse 6, In this, that is your, your coming salvation, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For the believer living in a messy world among people who may well oppose us, living among those who don't know the Lord and don't honor His rule, it refines us. That's what it does. It provides opportunity for us to grow in our trust, to grow to be more like Jesus, to hate sin more, to grow in godliness, so that when Jesus returns, our lives will be to His praise and to His honor. And just remember what the end goal is for us, His people. It is verse 30, 43, rather, that we who are righteous through Jesus will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Why the delay? The opportunity to repent, the refining of the believer, the farmer, he is patient. The harvest will be fuller. It will be greater. It will be richer for the weight. But make no mistake, the harvest will come. The judgment, it will come. Jesus is very clear about that. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The fact that God allows those who cause sin, allows lawbreakers, allows those who are living in active rebellion against Him. The fact that He allows such people to live and grow and flourish in this world for the present time, it doesn't mean that He hasn't noticed. It doesn't mean that He, he doesn't care or is turning a blind eye or won't do anything about it. The fact that He allows this for a time, it doesn't mean that the gospel is untrue or that God is without power. No, it means that he has decided to wait for a time. And so we mustn't be deceived. We've, we've got to be clear, as Jesus is clear, God will judge those who have not turned to him through faith in Christ. That's a simple reality. Judgment delayed is not judgment denied. 
The father, he knows what is best. The farmer, he knows what is good for his crop. But the harvest is coming. Judgment is, is coming. And it will be dreadful. It will be devastating. Just in recent days, there was, a, there was a house fire, actually, not far from our home. The place went up in flames pretty quickly. It was engulfed. There were fuel tanks that were in danger of exploding. Actually, at the side of the house, it was a scary fire, very dangerous the one resident of the house was rescued mercifully, but a number of the fire crew required some medical attention at the end. If you've seen a house fire, if you've experienced one, you'll know the sense of desperation to get out as quickly as possible before you are consumed. It's truly terrifying. But here is where all who have not bowed the knee to Jesus will go. He says, to the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping, weeping at the thought of the opportunity for repentance that was open but is now closed, weeping at the sheer regret of it all, and gnashing of teeth, gnashing in grief and anger and sheer agony. It's awful to think about. These words, they are very, very uncomfortable to hear. These images, they are dreadful to picture. Jesus is here talking about the Bible's most unpopular theme, a theme we might prefer to avoid but cannot ignore, the theme of hell itself. Jesus himself, he's actually very, very clear about hell. He talks about it more than anyone else in Scripture. He leaves us in absolutely no doubt that there is a place of punishment for sin that is more awful than we can imagine, a place of agony, a place of loss, a place of ongoing and conscious punishment. It is a place where we all deserve to go, each one of us, you and I. It is for all who cause sin, all who break God's law, and we're guilty of that, aren't we? Those who trust in Jesus, in his sin-bearing death, his life-giving resurrection, those who are right with God through faith in him, righteous through his gift. That's what that means. All such people are spared this awful future through the sheer mercy of God. But those who do not bow the knee to God's appointed king, who do not enter the kingdom by faith, for all who reject Jesus Christ, this is the future. And Jesus wants us to be very, very clear about it. And friends, we need to be clear about it. We need to reckon with this seriously. You need to reckon with it if you've not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. If you feel no urgency in making a response or making up your mind, let me say to you, this is urgent. There is nothing more urgent in your life today than this. This is the most important thing. There's no time to be lost. Following Jesus despite what we might assume. It's not about a kind of lifestyle preference, you know, take it or leave it if you like. Or It's not about finding personal fulfillment and reaching your goals or something superficial like that. Here's what it is about. It is about escaping the fiery furnace. He offers you that escape today. That's the offer of the gospel. Let me ask you, let me actually plead with you, and I mean this, would you run to him for safety while you still can. We need to reckon with this truth if we've grown apathetic about the things of Christ, 
and about the work of the gospel. You know, as believers, we don't serve in ministry or give our money away or send out missionaries to the far corners of the world or seek to be witnesses in our families and workplaces and so on because it's sort of nice and fulfilling or because we've got a little sense of obligation. We, here's why we do it, friends. We do it because people are going to hell. And if we have even a shred of human compassion for them, if we have even a shred of conviction about what Jesus is saying here in his word, we have a driving sense of urgency to get the gospel out. Do we still have that? Are we clear about that? Are we compelled in our ministry to proclaim Christ because we believe that those who do not know him will go to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity before us? I hope that's why we're doing it. I hope we're driven by that sense of urgency. And if we've lost something of that, as we sometimes can, as we so easily can, may the Lord imprint these fearful words of Jesus on our hearts and on our mind. Now, that is the dreadful reality for those who do not know Christ. But with the unrighteous sent away, the separation is complete at the harvest, at the judgment. And so the kingdom will now shine in its purity. Notice the future for all who believe, verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's our future. That, that will be us, not by our merit, but by the grace and kindness of Jesus. In, our, in ourselves, we have no righteousness. We have only filthy rags, but in his righteousness, lit by the radiance of his purity, we, his people, will shine in the kingdom. The picture today, it, it is mixed and messy, isn't it? The kingdom doesn't seem to us to be growing all that quickly. It doesn't look like it to me. We're mixed in this very murky society. In our darker moments, we wonder if the world will just swallow us up. But what will the future actually hold for the kingdom of heaven? It will grow exponentially, says Jesus. And at the judgment, it will shine in its purity. And in that hope, friends, we watch and we wait, we labor and we witness and we pour out our hearts in thanksgiving that unworthy as we are, we have a share in the glorious kingdom. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth. Our message, The Surprises of Kingdom Growth. Really a powerful look today at uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 43. Well, if you missed any part of the broadcast, come listen online. Our website address where you can stream the program or download an MP3 is EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. We do depend on your generosity to keep this teaching on the station. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book called The Four Emotions of Christmas. And Jonathan, why did you pick this book? Well, I think our great hope is that the book will bring encouragement at Christmas time, both for those who know Christ and those who don't. I think 
Christmas is often a time of very, very mixed emotions. We know it's meant to be the most wonderful time of the year. We know it's meant to be magical. And sometimes it is, and sometimes, well, it isn't. And in this little book, Bob Lupine takes us through the emotions of Christmas and actually traces those back to the first Christmas and draws us to find our joy in Christmas, not in our circumstances or our situation, which may be great or may not be great, but to find our joy and hope at Christmas in the Lord Jesus Christ who came to be our Savior. And I think that'll be an encouragement. I think that'll be a help to all of us. Well, we would love to send you a copy of this book. Again, it's called The Four Emotions of Christmas. It's our way of saying thank you for your financial support this month. You can give a gift online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-998-7884. That's EncounterTheTruth.org or 833-99-TRUTH. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.